0: Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i Faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Novin and Juliet, welcome to Baha'i Blogcast. So excited to have you on. It's such an interesting story that the two of you have and your company, One World Publications, is extraordinary. So uh, I can't wait to begin this conversation.
1: Well, thank you for having us on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you uh, virtually and uh, to be part of the Baha'i Blog.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, let's start at the very beginning. How long have you guys been married?
2: Oh gosh, that beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got married in nineteen eighty. Nineteen
0: eighty, yeah. Goodness gracious! So, how did you meet?
2: Uh, we were we were both studying in the same library in the same University of Edinburgh, so we we met quite regularly through the. Um, the Baha'is used to organize a uh, regular activities, and I started attending them. So I'd just come back from Haifa, where I'd been, uh, I'd, well, not from Haifa specifically, I'd been at uh, on a kibbutz in Israel and had come across the Baha'i faith in Haifa through a friend of my father's. And so when I attended university, I joined the Baha'i society and a few others. And uh, so I started meeting the Baha'is and, and uh, getting to know them quite well. And one of them happened to be Noveen here, so... We, we 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 got to know each other through three four years of university before we got married.
0: Oh, wonderful! But but before we move on, like, what brought you to work on a kibbutz in Israel, and what was that like?
2: <laughs> well, I'd, I'd been at um, agricultural college, and I was quite keen to study farming in uh, different climate and with different conditions. So I simply applied to go to a kibbutz, and I ended up in near Alat, in a very very hot part of Israel. Where they grew um, dates and melons and uh, had a dairy, so um, it was a it was a fascinating six months. And then from there, I went to university. But university, I didn't study agriculture; I studied anthropology.
0: Were you just studying all of the A disciplines? Yeah, I
2: I, I, I was going to do astronomy, but I thought anthropology sounded more interesting.
0: No, archaeology.
2: Uh, yeah, I also studied archaeology. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yo, you did. Okay, so you threw it all in. Excellent, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Excellent.
2: yeah.
1: Can I just add that before that she used to work in a circus as well, so she's yeah, had a much it's, it's more not much more interesting life than I've had.
2: Not all A's, yeah. I, I worked in a circus for a year as well.
0: Okay, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> you worked in a kibbutz and a circus. Yeah. Okay, this is this is too much. What were you doing in the circus?
2: I was looking after the horses and helping with the clowns, <laughs> as you do.
0: <laughs> was there an, was there like an ad in the paper of like okay, we need someone to uh, clean up the horse poop, and also apply clown makeup? Like, how did you fall into that?
2: <laughs> well, there was actually, there was an ad in Horse and Hound, and uh, at the time I was doing part-time work in, uh, you know, in restaurants in Sussex to earn the money to look after my horses, and I saw this ad, and I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. So my parents were slightly nervous about the idea that, as they said, I ran off to the circus, but um, it was it was really interesting. So I looked after the horses, which was something I knew in a community that I was very interested to get to know. So it was sort of a sociological exp- experiment for me, really, to, to understand a close-knit community like that and the hierarchies that exist in a circus and the, the way the different acts, the family owners and the hired hands like me all, all fit together. It was really interesting. And... What
0: uh, prompted your initial interest in the Baha'i faith? You're in a kibbutz in Israel. You come upon the Baha'i Holy Land, I assume, yeah. and start learning a little bit about it. What was what was your uh, spiritual or religious background before that point, and uh, which I was, allowed yeah. you to be intrigued?
2: I, I was a member of the Church of England growing up, and I went to boarding school, which means you go to church every day, and twice on Sundays. and. After leaving school, I was a member of my local church, and my mother and I were probably the only two at the time in the family who were interested in Christianity, although obviously the whole family was, you know, on on paper Christian. But I think I I kind of felt that I started to have questions that went beyond uh, what we were being taught on Sundays. And... Began to sort of draw back a little bit, and then when I sort of put it aside, and but when I went to university, I joined the the Baha'i Society, the Methodist Society, and the Bible Study Society. So clearly, I was interested in religion, but um, out of <laughs> out of that, I was kind of kicked out of the Bible Study Society for answering for really asking questions that I was, I was discussing in the in the behind sections of of the the sort of student life and I think they found it a little disruptive because they were trying to study the bible with a kind of a what does son of god mean read matthew chapter this verse that as the answer and I was kind of saying but what if you look at this what if you look at that and what does what is the afterlife of the soul and all, all these kind of questions that were much broader than the, the way we were being taught, and I think they they didn't really feel I was towing the line sufficiently, so they kind of encouraged me to to look elsewhere for answers. And I found the 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 Baha'i sessions, which were very kind of informal. It was sort of really a vegetarian lunch, and I was vegetarian at the time, so it was appealing to me um, primarily. And um, and then they would often sort of have a separate session if you if you wanted voluntarily to go into another room and and they would give a little talk or they would discuss a principle. And to me, to me, allowed me the freedom to ask much deeper questions and to I just found it fascinating, to be honest. I found it intellectually very stimulating and it, it made as As you find with a lot of people who first come across the faith, it made a lot of sense. you know when when you've lived in, say, a Jewish community, a Christian community, then you come across Baha'is I, I also knew some Muslims at the time, and w- when you first come across the Baha'i principle that all religions are one and all people are one. and I was studying anthropology at the time and you and and studying a lot of primitive religions that uh, you know prehistorical religions and tribal religions the the Baha'i overarching concept that all people are equal and all religions are equal made absolute sense to me at the time nothing could have made more sense so for me it was a very easy step to say well yeah i believe it all and then i went to an event and somebody said well so how long have you been a baha'i and i go well i'm not i'm not a baha'i and they go well why not I <laughs> thought, well that's actually a good question and it's a question we don't ask enough i think sometimes and and i sort of thought about it for a while and uh then i thought well perhaps i perhaps i am a bahai and i believe there's nothing that i don't agree with and so it was for me quite a simple process
0: and was there a certain point of inspiration as well visiting the bahai holy land in israel was there some connection that was made there
2: to be honest i i i went there because my my father's one of my father's best friends widow was the deputy head of tourism in haifa and so I went up to stay with her a few times and she took me there. And it was really recognizing the name in Freshers' Week of, mm-hmm. a, of the Baha'i stand that made it click. And it was so soon afterwards I just felt it was kind of fated in a way that, I, and I felt I should, I owed it myself to investigate further. You know, I, I hadn't been, in fact, I didn't think I'd been given any information when I was in Haifa, but I later found a leaflet, which I'd clearly picked up there. So I kind of felt like everything in my life had been leading in this sort of direction, that it had been broadening out, it had been deepening, and it it made a lot of sense to me that I, I met the Baha'is so soon after having been to Haifa, and they were very excited to hear I'd just been to Haifa, Um to them i think it made a lot of sense as well but for me the inspiration was more of the coincidence of it and then finding so many of the ideas made so much sense to me given my background given my interests given what i was studying it, it just all made sense so it was just a it was a happy a happy meeting of minds and souls i think
0: hmm oh that's wonderful and novin you came to the UK when you were young, kind of right before the Islamic Revolution. What was that like and what precipitated your move?
1: Well, I'm the youngest in my family of uh, four, four kids. And um, my father, who was um, a lawyer in the oil company, in the Iranian oil company in Abadan, which was a major, you know, it was a city of a uh, major oil refinery and oil, kind of Iranian oil scene. Uh, He retired and um, my my siblings were all in German speaking countries. They were in Austria and Luxembourg and they wanted to move somewhere English speaking. So when he retired in 1971, you know, they said, yes, Brighton in England was a nice city by the sea. So we just came to UK and uh, we ended up in Brighton. Uh, I was um, 15, I think, at the time.
0: Uh, And what was that like for a family of uh, Iranian immigrants to Brighton, England in the 70s? I feel like that should be an independent film.
1: <laughs> there were actually a surprisingly large number of Iranians in Brighton at the time and in London. For me what was interesting was that in Austria where my brothers studied a lot of Iranians um, would basically come and never go back to Iran, you know, they will set, settle down in Austria, marry, you know, locals. And also many of them were highly politicized. They were involved in anti shah various anti shah movements in the early 1960s, you know, mid-60s in Austria. The, I think it was called the Student Federation movement. And a lot of my, I remember a lot of my brother's friends were you know, active members of that. So once you start doing those things and you marry you know, an Austrian, then you kind of end up living there. But the, the, the ones who came to Britain typically came for a short period. They studied and then they went back to Iran. So it was a kind of a transient community. It, it was a kind of a culture shock, of course, as well, coming from uh, you know a, a, a more sociable environment of Iran, coming to UK. Especially the food. Especially the food. <laughs> especially the food. Yes, yes. You know, you know. I, I remember a, a very nice Iranian family. You know, to, one day when we showed up at their house in in Brighton in the first few weeks when we arrived there, uh, said to us, you know, by the way, I need to point out to you that in this country people don't just show up to other people's homes. You know, they ring first, they arrange to go to someone's house, etc., cetera, et cetera, And I thought, oh my God, what, what kind of country have we come to? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that seemed oh. like a really unfriendly thing. Um, ah. But uh, yes, you know, sort of cultural differences.
0: That's funny. I was just picturing like, what would it be like if at any point in time someone could just knock on my door and show up and be like, hey, was was just in the neighborhood. And then I would need to welcome them in, cook for them, make tea for them. I mean, it sounds beautiful, but boy, it would make my head explode.
1: But, but in Iran, we did that actually.
2: And that we, in Cyprus.
1: Uh, yeah, and you know, certainly in Iran, it, you know, you go, someone's home, if they're not in, that's fine. If they're, you know, if it's inconvenient even, you know, you might go away or stay, you know, a short period and go away. But it wasn't a big deal. And then as Julia says, we moved to Cyprus at some point. Uh, for about five years and uh, it was the same there most people didn't have phones so you Mm -hmm. know you you didn't actually have the option of of calling them you just showed up and that was completely normal
0: Mm. so one world publishing Mm. and by the way for people that are interested it's oneworld-publications.com but you founded that in 1986 Mm -hmm. take me through you're in a courtship in Edinburgh It's 1980. You got married. What happened between the two of you in that marriage? Juliet, you're a new Baha'i before you found the publishing company.
2: Uh, Rightly or wrongly, we had two children and um, (laughs) it was very cold and windy in Scotland in uh, the winter of 1982. And I kind of chucked in the towel and... You know, hadn't long left university. Found being isolated in a tiny village with two children quite tough. And we decided mm. we'd move to Cyprus, where they needed Baha'is and uh, particularly families. And so we literally drove to Cyprus. And uh, Novin got a Juliet, job. Juliet,
0: of... Juliet, Cyprus is an island.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. So we we drove to we you drove can't to, drive to Cyprus. We, we drove. Down through Europe to the <laughs> bottom of Italy, took the boat to Greece, and from Greece took the boat to Cyprus. The, uh, okay, with good. Two, okay. With all two right. little children, uh, aged one and two and a half, so uh, it was an Goodness. interesting experience. And Novin simply got a job as an accountant in Limassol, where we lived, and it was all very straightforward.
0: How long were you in Cyprus, and what was that like? Pioneering in the eighties in Cyprus. Um, this is also exotic for me. I'm sitting yeah. in suburban Los Angeles. I kind of want to know, like, give me the goods. This is exciting. Yeah. Circuses and kibbutzes and Cyprus. Come Cy- on.
2: Cyprus was amazing. I mean, for, for anyone brought up in Northern Europe, it's a fantastic island to live in. The, the community is is, as Novi was saying, very sociable and. I think for us that was the, the the part that we valued. That a children are welcome everywhere. If you if you invited to someone's house and you turn up without the children, they will complain. As opposed to in England, where if you turn up with the children, they go, oh shoot, they brought the kids. Um, so uh, yeah, so I think it was the it was the community life we loved. Um, we built a very strong community in Limassol. Um, I think by the time we left, there were about 15 adults and about 20 kids or something. So it was quite a thriving community during the time we were there and a um, lot of children um, and it was, you know, a very outdoor lifestyle, you know, because even in the winter, the winter in Cyprus is pretty much like a British summer and then the, the problem is mm. the summer is very hot. You know, in those days, no one had a phone and no one had air con, so it was, it was in that sense, quite a challenge. But, um, no, we loved it there. The, the problem we found was that, surprisingly for 1983 almost all the women worked and it meant that there were very few facilities for women with young children who weren't working and didn't want to put their kids into a nursery and so um, I kind of I, I suppose I found it quite difficult being a parent of young children in in that environment and noveen wasn't particularly keen on accountancy having studied it for the previous five years so um in the end we for some reason we we'd always had the idea of setting up a publishing company potentially with a bookshop and event space attached which never did materialize and he handed it's never it never too late uh, well i i totally agree with you that and i'll take that as an endorsement of my passion <laughs> when i next bring it up with noveen and he tries to beat it down um, <laughs> but um, so so we decided to set up a publishing company on a tourist island in the Mediterranean, which proved to have its own challenges, not least that the printers never thought they would get paid because they thought you were so far away that you would run away with their uh, money.
1: British printers, yeah. British printers, so yeah.
2: yeah. So we, we we started from the point of not ever having worked in publishing, neither of us. And we set about literally learning whatever we could and finding, finding printers, finding people who could help with the production, finding distribution. And then we had One World, so it, it turned out to be relatively straightforward in the end.
0: So, you know, was One World founded in Cyprus then?
2: To be fair, it was. We actually registered it in the, technically, I think in the autumn of 1984, but our first books came out in 1986, and by 1988, we we found it too difficult to run a company which effectively had to be based in, in Britain. From Cyprus, so we decided to move back, and we moved to Oxford in order to run it better.
0: So I come from the theater, and I have a lot of friends who started theater companies, and that is also a, an extremely difficult endeavor. I mean, you think about it, and it's like, oh, how hard can it be? You find a space, get some some plays, get a bunch of actors together, sell some tickets. You know, how mm. hard could it be? But you have to have a vision for the company itself. You have to you know, have uh, that vision match with what the space is. How are you going to market it? There's a lot of plays out there. How are you going to entice audiences to come in? Then you've got the whole accounting thing. You've got grants and the nonprofit aspect of theater trying to raise money because theater can't be self-sufficient just from ticket sales. It goes on and on and on. You have a staff. You're running a staff. There's the technical aspects of theater. It's extremely complicated with a lot of different facets, and the only reason I'm bringing this up is, you know, it, it kind—I've used the, the euphemism of my head exploding previously, but it kind of makes my head explode thinking about like starting a publishing company. Like, wait a second. Okay, there's printers and binders and there's fonts and like designing covers, and then how do you get them? from the, there into a warehouse and then you've got to get them out to stores and there's distributors and then you keep track of the money and, you know, international rights and uh, contracts and legalities. Like there's so much stuff like um, before we go into kind of the Philosophical meat of what you do with One World Publishing. How did you navigate this launch between eighty four and eighty seven?
1: Well, I think based on what you've just, the few things you've just said, you you know more about it than we did at the time. You know, we really knew very little about publishing. But when we were at university, we we used to spend a lot of time in bookshops and looking at books, and so you know we were interested in the book industry. You know, Juliet was a very uh, dynamic um, officer in charge of book sales in the Bahá'í community, and she was ordering books from like all kinds of random countries that Bahá'ís had never heard of, uh, and were selling their Bahá'í publications, to the, you know, in the local community, and uh, I think ended up making a lot of money for the, I did. For, the yep. for the for the Oxford for the Edinburgh Bahá'í bookstores or whatever. Not making a profit. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, so you know we had we had an interest in the in, in the subject and in, the, in in the industry, but yes it's a it's a kind of one of those embarrassing businesses to start, uh, you know for the first few years you're going around with a very flimsy catalog, uh, no one has heard of your authors no one has ever seen your books in any bookshop, um, you know there's a long list and until you have. Um, you know, a more regular number of titles that you publish every year, and more, you know, prominent authors. Distributors aren't interested in carrying your books to bookshops, you know, or representing your books to book to bookstores. Um, so it's it's a kind of a chicken and egg situation, mm. and it, you know, it, it, you basically you know have to persevere for a few years uh, before mm. you know things very gradually improve, and you learn more about the business. And uh, you, you know, you push the boat out very gradually.
2: It's certainly a lot easier to set up a publishing company today because you have internet, which we didn't have, and I think we still had telex when we started. If you can remember that. And then fax was just coming in. So um, I think with the internet today, you can you can jumpstart several years we spent learning the business, you know, there are conferences you can go to to learn, you know, what publishing is all about, there are networking events, there are organisations mm-hmm. set up to help small publishers in both America and Britain, you know, you can you can go around to agents, literary agents and explain to them what you're looking for. And we didn't, I'm sure there were agents around, but we certainly didn't know about them for, for many years. So we we set up with the idea of of trying to get academics to write for a general audience because it was an area of the market that wasn't very well developed. As I said, there was no internet, there was no Google. So in our experience, when you leave university, you often develop other interests in other subjects. But, you know, you no longer have a tutor, you no longer have access to libraries like university libraries. But you also don't want to get a very basic beginner's guide. So you want something a little bit more developed. And we felt that we can persuade academics to write for a general audience, which is even today not always that easy. They, they're not always able to write in a in a way that's accessible to a general sure. audience and need a lot of editorial support. And some of them simply are not comfortable, particularly in the social sciences, writing for a broad audience. But um, mm-hmm. that was what we wanted to do. And so we set up very much as a nonfiction publisher, with the idea of, of making knowledge accessible and also to to publish books that have a multi faith angle as well. So, those were our two main interests.
0: So, let's just put a pin in that. So, the philosophy behind One World Publishing was taking non fiction and making it accessible to a mass audience. This is before the internet. So, you know, big ideas. For a, for a wider general audience, and at the same time having interfaith and multi-faith kind of texts available for a, for a mass audience. Was, the, was there any other philosophical foundation to the launch of the publishing company?
2: I mean, that was pretty much it. But obviously, a lot of the people we have initially had access to were Baha'i academics. So we also did books on science and religion. We did books on spiritual parenting. We did sort of multi-faith collections of of quotations and that kind of thing as well in the mix. But it wasn't ever supposed to be specifically a religious publishing company. We really wanted to, to as you say, cover big ideas, but I suppose in, infused with the kind of values that we had ourselves in our own lives. That was really our, our main interest.
0: Hmm. And for those, and I just want to put in a little plug for this publishing company. So here we are having this podcast about this obscure publishing company that's not very well known outside of the UK, but it it just bears noting how incredible One World is and how incredibly successful it is. It has here on their webpage, the New Statesman says One World has a remarkable track record of spotting novels that deserve wider attention outside their native lands. London Review of Books says One World punches above its considerable weight so you, they had consecutive Booker Prize wins uh, at One World. So the bookseller magazine says it would be an impressive feat for, say, Penguin Random House to notch up consecutive Booker wins. For an indie such as One World, it's an astounding achievement. And the plaudits and laudits go on and on and on for this uh, exceptional, used to be small, now is pretty pretty robust Uh publishing company. So I just wanted to, for the listener who might not know kind of what it is we're talking about, we're talking about an an astonishing success in an independent publishing house. But go ahead, Novin, you wanted to address the philosophy that inspired the launch.
1: Sure. I mean, I think basically Juliet mentioned, you know, certainly, you know, Baha'i inspired publishing activity in the sense that, you know, in the sense of Baha'i ideals, Baha'i values concerned with social issues uh, certainly, you know, dialogue among religions, uh, adherence equality. of religions, equality, all, all of these kind of things, which are kind of normal issues that Baha'is discuss, were our main areas of interest in publishing. And they still are in many mm-hmm. ways. Um, also, in our fiction list, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, Juliet is uh, responsible for all these bouquet winners that you mentioned. Um, you know, she looks for, the, you know, social and critical issues of our time that they, they reflect and the, the diversity of um, lives and civilizations and, you know, cultural values. So, um, so yeah. basically,
0: long before the Universal House of Justice was asking us to have elevated conversations, you guys were inspiring elevated conversations.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Yeah. So... Part of what One World does is interfaith dialogue. And I know that you have a great number of Christian and Muslim academics and writers that are a part of the One World family. So can you talk a little bit about developing that branch of the publishing house?
1: Sure, in the 1980s and 90s, The whole subject of interfaith dialogue had become very um, kind of current and topical. And especially several major Christian academics were involved in really pioneering work. People like John Hick, for example, a British philosopher uh, who who died recently. Um, You know, his ideas of, you know, the connection between world religions um, and, you know, one of his famous um, metaphors was that, instead of thinking that Jesus is at the center uh, and all other religions are kind of revolve around it, uh, that, you know, he introduced this Copernican revolution, that God was at the center and all other messengers or prophets or manifestations of God revolved around that center. So, um, you know, the, the idea that there are many paths to the same truth, et cetera, et cetera. These were works that Christian, mainly Christian academics and philosophers had pioneered. And this was obviously very much in tune with Baha'i ideas, and so we were very attracted to that. And another area which was also fascinating for us was, you know, the, 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 you know, especially in the writings of Shoghi Effendi, but also in the talks of Abdu'l-Baha, we come across this very often, the importance of Western Baha'is representing an accurate impression of Islam. In other words, you know that there is so much misunderstanding mm. in the West about the message of Islam, the station of Muhammad, and uh, you know the, the revelation. And you know Shoghi Effendi said this is one of the duties of the Baha'is in the West to to correct this. Mm. And mm. you know Abdu'l-Bahá, we know, you know, went to, to to churches and synagogues and talked about the truth of Muhammad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, you know it's impossible, really, to have a sufficient understanding of bahai revelation without understanding its parent religion which is islam and you know the you know the islamic tradition so you know, one of the things that has been a focus for our list, and still is, is books on Islamic studies. I mean, these are not proselytizing books. You know, we don't publish book mm-hmm. proselytizing books either, you know, on the Baha'i topics or other religions. These are, these are books written by academics exploring interesting aspects uh, of history or teachings or, you know, lives mm. of the founders. So, yes, Islamic studies has been a, a focus in our list, which uh, it personally interests me greatly.
0: And I find even with some Iranian Baha'is that their knowledge of Islam is very limited or very skewed because they've suffered so much in Iran or their family has that quite often their kind of knowledge of like the Quran itself is is quite limited. So that's interesting that Shoghi Effendi put this on Western Baha'i to kind of show fairly uh, the Quran and the dispensation of Muhammad. What have you learned personally from all these interactions with these wonderful uh, Islamic scholars at One World.
1: Well, I mean, the, the, the point that, as you say, Shoghi Effendi really touched on very clearly is the extent of Islamophobia or, and misapprehensions about Islam, which he wanted the Baha'is to correct. And Islamophobia, a topic which has become extremely current now, I mean, it is literally inescapable in the West. Uh, you know in, mm-hmm. in our media in our culture in our immigration policies etc etc and it it really is you know the way certainly the way we see it is 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 an important duty for bahais to make sure that you know they they are not they, they, they don't get taken up by this friends you know this amazing frenzy of anti muslim sentiments that um, mm-hmm. you know especially mm-hmm. because of the iranian revolution um, you know you will find Baha'is or members of other religious minorities you know Jewish Iranian Jews, Iranian Christians you know they mix their, their hatred, their dislike for the Iranian regime with Islam hmm. it's, it's, it is understandable to some extent of course yeah. but, but those who live in the West are also continuously exposed to limitless Islamophobia so it really requires a very conscious effort to not get taken up by this, and uh, and realize, in fact, the, the the life and death impact of this. You know, we see in the, we see it even in the West. You know, the way uh, Muslims can get you know they get beaten up, they get picked on, they get you know yeah. uh, bullied, etc., etc. So you know, we come from a persecuted community ourselves in Iran. So we should be really. Mm aware of this and conscious of uh, the impact of these views, these sentiments eventually do end up in actions, in violence against innocent people. And, you know, you can't understand the Baha'i revelation, which is so much concerned with Islam, with the imams, with its links to the Quran and, you know, Rumi and etc., etc. If you want to completely Extract Islam and Islamic culture and civilization from Bahai revelation. It's just simply not doable, no matter right. how much some Bahais may like to do it. Yeah. So appreciation of Islam uh-huh. is is certainly critical for Bahais, and this is you see that very much emphasized in Shoghi Effendi's writings and letters. You know, Bahai summer schools have should have courses on Islam. You know. It's not. He's not saying that the Baha'i faith is a, is a sect of Islam or it's not an yeah. independent religion. But he says you have to understand that one.
2: In the same way that Christians generally study the Old Testament, mm-hmm. it's the same mm-hmm. sort of relationship.
0: Oh yeah, that's 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 very well said. And uh, I wish that ha- that had been part of my Baha'i education because I grew up Baha'i. I was learning more about the Quran, but we never study. I mean, I went to college knowing nothing about Muhammad, his history. The Quran, what was in it, uh, what was actually said, you know, the amazing mystical poetry of the, you know, of the Muslim dispensation, like Rumi, like you you had mentioned, and other Sufi mystics. And that's that's too bad, because that would have been an, an amazing part of my, I'm having to kind of fill that in piecemeal as an adult.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and Bahá'u'lláh actually addresses this issue uh, in the Kitab, in the you know, Iran, uh, in the Book of Certitude, where he says, don't judge a religion by its followers. I mean, he says this in these so many words mm, He says, mm, uh, you mm. know, and okay, you know, we look around this and there are aspects of um, the Behavior of Muslim nations or some Muslim individuals that really we find reprehensible. Absolutely But Baha'u'llah's warning is there. He says don't don't judge that religion just by those mm. actions
0: Um, And and then oddly enough, the main success, it seems, of One World is winning all these Booker Prizes and the incredible home runs that you guys have hit in fiction. And you you spoke before briefly about Juliet kind of finding these voices. Can you talk a little bit about this aspect of the imprint, Juliet?
2: So I read very widely in uh, university translated fiction and fiction from all around the world. And we we discussed a few times whether we should set up a fiction list, and we were a little nervous of um, getting into it because we had already been receiving uh, numerous um, submissions from authors, which you know on with novels, and we were able to say, "Oh, I'm so sorry, we don't publish fiction," and we were slightly reluctant to give that up, but. I'd been reading novels, you know, from authors set in, in Africa, in Af- Afghanistan and around the world. And I kept saying to Novin, if we had a fiction list, that's exactly what I would like to publish. And it went on for a while. And eventually I thought, you know what? I'll start telling literary agents who would begun to get to know quite <clears throat> well that I would love to, to set up a, a list similar to the sort of list that... I admire people like uh, Frastras Giro or Knopf or Picador over here or Faber and um, publishing companies that we admired for their literary fiction. And the first person practically I was talking to at the Frankfurt Book Fair said, oh, I, I think I've got something you might like. And it was a novel set in the 18th century in a, on a slave plantation in Jamaica written entirely in pidgin English. And mm. I started reading it and I went, wow, this is, this is perfect. It doesn't sound mm. perfect, perhaps, to a bookseller, but it sounded perfect to me. And it was by Marlon James. It was his second novel. And I bought it. And to everybody's surprise, most especially mine, um, we pitched it to a number of booksellers when we were near to publication and they all seemed to get quite excited by it. And I thought, well, gosh, this sounds really difficult. Aren't they worried about readers finding it hard to hard to read or what have you and there was there's a chain of, of bookshops in airports here that's owned by WH Smith and the fiction buyer at the time um, Matt said to the person representing us I, I love this I think this is fabulous let's put it in the bestseller list and I and I kind of went well can they do that can they can you put it straight to a bestseller <laughs> list it's it's a, it's a novel by somebody not living in Britain they were living at that point in Minnesota Jamaican quite difficult slave plantation when slavery is just about to end. And I and I was very surprised. And then a few weeks later, um they came back and said, oh no, he's not going to put it in the bestseller list. I thought, oh well, that's fine, of course. And he said, no, he's putting it in the in the, the the time they used to have one shelf, which is the book everyone's reading this week. And I thought, oh my oh. God, that's so much pressure. <laughs> but it, it did really well and, and Matt was this fantastic supporter of the book and he kept re-promoting it. He kept it in the bestseller list. So the very first novel we ever published, you know, as I say, by a, a Jamaican who had never been published in England before, it, it went on selling and selling and selling. And it, it gave us really a start. It gave us a little mm. bit of confidence that perhaps my slightly wacky taste, maybe <laughs> maybe other people might like it as well. Um, it didn't win it it it, it won it won a Green Carnation Prize, which is a not a huge prize, but it, it didn't win prizes, but it sold solidly. And of course the next book he wrote, which I had a an option on, um, went on to win the Booker Prize in 2015. So we were incredibly fortunate that had I not bought The Book of Nightmomen by Marlon James, I would not have had the opportunity to publish A Brief History of Seven Killings, which was his third book, which is the one that became an international bestseller.
0: Oh, that's such a beautiful story. That's really exciting. And, you know, I think about, and I've mentioned it before on this podcast, and I love that metaphor and the image that, both abdul baha and shoghi effendi weave throughout their writings which is that the bahais are like the leaven and mm. i love this image of you can't make a loaf of bread it's just a hard you know chunk of like wheat and wheat paste and and water if you if you don't have this kind of impurity if you don't know, <laughs> I hate to say impurity but this bacteria that allows it to rise that allows mm-hmm. it to elevate again elevated conversations that leaven has things rise and and I and that's how I view one world publications as you know this leaven of moving the conversation forward decades at a time with uh, voices that people weren't willing to take a chance on and topics that people didn't think were publishable. Um, Mm. That's, that's, that's so exciting. And so we, we hear a lot about the future of books, the future of publishing. People don't read books anymore. Is this true? Where is the world of publishing going?
2: I think, um, certainly, I know when eBooks started a decade ago, people thought this would be the end of physical books. But in fact, physical books have been going from strength to strength, and I think the market is is getting bigger. I think access to books online and in shops is, is makes it very easy for people to to buy books in whatever form they want to read or listen. So I think it's still a very um, important part of people's lifestyle. The number of people who come up to us and said, I just like the feel of a book. I like to take a book on holiday. I like to read in the evenings. And I think it's it's hard to imagine, especially with so much learning going online, it's hard to imagine that certainly the physical book w- won't endure endlessly. I can't see a, a time when, when it won't. But it's up to publishers to make books relevant, to to be able to reach an audience, to develop that audience. I mean, in both Britain and America in particular, there's a great emphasis at the moment on diversity and inclusivity quite rightly. And I think we've been very fortunate that our list is already incredibly diverse. We have books um, written by authors from over probably over 50 countries. And I think this this has given us an opportunity to to be kind of at the heart of this developing um, interest that, we, we have authors from, you know, uh, this, this current season, we have authors from Singapore, from v- Vietnam, from Ghana, from Uganda, from Native American authors. We have a YA book coming out in the spring from a fantastic Ojibwe author. So we've been very fortunate to sort of be, because I think of, of our attitude as world citizens, we've been very fortunate to be slightly ahead of the curve. And um, it's, it's placed us well. And I think as long as we keep publishing books that people want to read, I think the, the readership will be there.
0: That's wonderful. And what did you think of my book?
2: <laughs> we were very <laughs> surprised you didn't offer it to us. And, That's
0: and, and offended. wonderful, yeah. wonderful, yeah. awkward pause. <laughs> <laughs> but Would you have taken The Bassoon King for a British publication?
1: Well, it's a good question. I know it sold very well in America, though.
0: <laughs> that's not true it sold okay but they gave me a big fat advance because i was a tv actor and i don't think they made their advance back so i think they're still licking their wounds over it but it's, people still enjoy it anyways i just, well just have a little i've, read, fun you, with I've
1: read the reviews and you know people say you have a <laughs> fan base for sure for that book
0: people people enjoy it and i you know I, one thing i tried to do was i told the publisher listen it's going to be It's going to be three quarters funny stories and anecdotes and absurdity, and it's going to make people laugh. And there's going to be one quarter of the book that is about my spiritual journey, and it's going to be about the Baha'i faith, and it's going to talk about prayer and meditation and the search for God and life's big questions and stuff like that. So it's like, it's going to be both. I'm warning you. I'm just warning you. People may not be so keen for this, but... um, but they went for it, but that was, that was my goal. Anyways, I don't know why we're talking about this. Well, we're talking about it because I'm a narcissist and it <laughs> always has to be about me. So, um, but, uh, I know that the future of publishing, like I have, we have way too many physical books. Like the, our shelves are too full. We can't literally buy anymore, but I have my uh, iPad and, um, I hear about books that I want to read. And I just, with a click of a button on my iTunes store, I have my iPad filled with books. And I'm unfortunately uh, in this situation where I've read the first quarter or the first third of about 20 really interesting books (laughs) and then have very little follow through about actually finishing the book, which is too much. But I imagine that there's a lot of people like me that are actually buying more books uh, electronically. It's a new way, because I don't like to carry a book around. I like to have the iPad, and then whatever i feel like oh i want to read a religious book do i want to read a you know a thriller do i want to read something inspiring do i want to read uh you know something on you know race and racial justice you know i have all of those options yeah. right there on my yeah on my little uh, ipad yeah
2: and audiobooks has become a big thing and and is expanding very rapidly i mean initially audiobooks or originally cassettes were seen as something that publishers produced in small numbers for the for the blind community uh for the visually impaired and and now it's something people listen to in the car they listen to it at night when they go to sleep they listen to it on airplanes so that has been a very lucrative area of publishing and publishers are very even-handed they're quite happy to sell a book in any format people want to read it so we don't mind as long as we get the money we don't mind
0: (laughs) (laughs) i sometimes go jogging and listen to books when I'm tired of podcasts and I just want to be filled with information. In fact, I've been listening to uh, Omid Safi, PhD, uh, Memories of Muhammad. Yes, yes. Why the Prophet that, Matters. That's one of
1: Novin's authors. He's great. Omid Safi, Iranian, American, great, great oh. guy. Yes, we published a
0: book. Oh, great. We published yeah, a book. I've, I've poem, been yes. enjoying it a lot. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. But well, we have a, a kind of a fairly prestigious series called Makers of the Muslim World, which um, was initially started as a series editor uh, by, by Professor Patricia Krone, who is one of the most distinguished or was one of the most famous uh, historians of Islam uh, at Princeton. And, uh, you know, we do small volumes on significant movers and shakers of the Muslim world. And there are about 40 mm. books in that series now. Oh. And we're still publishing more. Wonderful.
0: So, are there any favorite books, books that kind of Sum up this cross section of what you're trying to do with multicultural voices, interfaith voices and dialogues, uh, kind of Baha'i inspired storytelling and big ideas. Are there a a handful that you'd recommend our listeners to dip into?
1: Sure. I'll mention a few nonfiction ones, perhaps. You know, we've done a few Baha'i related books. One of them is called The Baha'i Faith in Words and Images, written by Sina Fazel and John Dinesh. It's an illustrated book. It's a great introduction to the Baha'i Faith.
2: It's something that you can give to anybody. It's very, it's not proselytizing, it's it's information, but it's it's a, it's very accessible.
1: Um, another book that I think we feel kind of proud in publishing is by a very distinguished Israeli academic, Ilan Pape, Professor Ilan Pape, who, when we published the book, was a professor at Haifa University. Uh, it's called um, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. It's a very significant book on the relation between Israel and Palestine. Oh. Um, it's, it's a historical book. It's been a huge seller as well. And uh, Ilan is a, is a great uh, you know, academic in the field and explains the kind of the history of the relation between the building of the state of Israel and the Palestinian community. So...
2: Which we felt was very important because um I think sp- certainly English people have a natural affinity with the underdog, and while many people might argue Palestinians are not the underdog, he's among many Israelis who are very concerned about the treatment of Palestinians, and this book, in a rather unsentimental way, goes through uh, sort of decade by decade what has happened to them and it's certainly a book that I cried editing. I think it was very moving and I think it's the book I'm mm. proud I'm proudest of, to be honest, in among the non fiction books that I've published. But we, we you know, we have several editors now and we have many books that we're um enthusiastic about in the non fiction side, haven't we no
1: Well you talk about the fiction side.
2: Oh. <laughs> Well, I mean, apart from the books that have won prizes like um, A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James and The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which both won the Booker Prize, we published last year um, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones, which won the Women's Prize, which is the other big prize in the UK. And mm. she really has produced a story in that's very accessible. It's It's literary, but it's also very much the sort of book you can read at your you know, neighborhood book club. But it really addresses, as does the sellout, actually, it really addresses a lot of the pernicious aspects of race in America, which I think fiction can be a very good vehicle for taking people into other people's lives and letting you walk in, in other people's shoes. And those two books, I think, for me, do that very well. They really show mm. you... Um, what it's like to be black in America. And I think for me, that's that's an important way to address issues in a softly, softly approach. But obviously the story has to be very strong for them to work. You can't load up a, a, a novel with heavy ideas and expect it to sell. But those two have done a very good job of, I suppose, creating an empathetic characters which allow you to go on that journey with them and we've also published a book set in Singapore, How We Disappeared by Jingjing Jing Lee, which again puts you in the position of the Singaporean villagers at the time of the Japanese invasion. In In Britain, we tend to learn of the Far East side of the Second World War very much from the point of view of either the British soldiers or the expat communities that had to flee and often were sent off to camps. And I think mm. it was the first time I've ever really looked at the situation from the from the point of view of the of the people who lived in Singapore the singaporeans so those hmm. to me are are among many books where we've tried to find stories that broaden our understanding of the world and its history and often its ongoing problems in a way that people can identify with with the characters and it's a sort of it conveys a type of truth which is still valid but obviously it's through the imagination of of the novelist but it still they still convey a truth that is real and pertinent, and that helps people to become more empathetic. And actually, literary mm. fiction is is one of the primary ways they think that people do become do develop empathy, which is why oh. it's it's quite worrying that men don't read much fiction, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> just saying that, just saying that, because uh, it's great. actually a, well, it's actually a study.
0: Yes. Well, you've actually um, hit hit a nerve because I used to read a lot of fiction. My wife is a fiction writer, actually published and well-regarded short story writer. I went to Iowa Writers Workshop and whatnot. But um, I used to read a lot of fiction and I really, I don't know what it is, but I'm just much more interested in, in the world of ideas and... Um, ah,
2: but fiction is also a world of ideas, that's, that's the mistake. It's not, it's not considered manly. Maybe you're suffering from that, uh, uh, <laughs> idea.
0: <laughs> I love that you're sticking it to the men about fiction, but I, that it's so important. This, um, you know, this is one of the major breakdowns of the, of Western civilization is the lack of compassion and lack of empathy. Um, on you the part it, of men, you, you see saying. it everywhere.
2: On, on the part of men, you mean?
0: <laughs> so, so, so now what about bahais so two questions what kind of books would you like to see more from bahais and about the bahai faith uh in the marketplace and what advice do you have for aspiring bahai writers
1: well again it, it, if you if you're talking non-fiction or fiction i mean i think spiritual fiction probably you know can be fantastic but it's so okay. difficult to pull off um you know not many people can get away with you know books like siddhartha or living was it jonathan Livingston seagull and books like that that we used to read you know when Mm. we were much younger um but those kind of books i mean those would be amazing and they, they are moving and they they you know they make us reflect um so yeah, I'm sure that phase will come. You know how publishing goes through these fads and phases, and mm. that phase may well come back. I'm hoping it will. But um, in terms of nonfiction, well, you know, it's, it's difficult. B- Baha'is f- don't generally find it very easy to write in a way which is not uh, proselytizing, but is kind of measured and reflects their expertise in a subject. Um, mm-hmm. there are, so I think that that is the main challenge for Bahais. Uh, I mean, when we set up One World, we were very keen to publish more Bahai books, but we soon found that well,
2: books written by Bahais.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. books written by Bahais presenting Bahai perspectives, but
2: it's softly, softly.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it, you know, you need to you know they need to first be experts within a field, and be able to correlate that field with Bahai principles and kind of framework. And that is a very difficult thing to achieve. And we soon found that, you know, well, there aren't many people who can do it.
2: Mm.
1: So... Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. We
2: certainly is. have very few Baha'i authors, to be a
1: Yes, we do. You know, as a result, we have much fewer Baha'i authors than we would ideally like, but... Um,
0: oh, great. So you're, you hear that, listeners? They're taking solicitations <laughs> for all of those Baha'i authors, for all of those... You said you cut that books. out, right? Damn. But the... But one thing I want to say, like, because you've mentioned a couple of times without proselytizing, and obviously we're forbidden to proselytize and no one wants a hard sell and no one wants to, quote unquote, attempt to be converted. But at the same time, I've noticed um, in this era in the, in the United States, in the last three to five years, the appetite for kind of alternative spiritual paths um, and spiritual solutions to the kind of ravenous disunity that's happening uh, across the globe is enormous. And people just over the last really three or four years are so hungry to learn more and to get more Baha'i perspectives. And they're spiritually curious in ways that they weren't, you know, seven years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So I think a lot of Baha'is that I interact with who have maybe, um, I don't know, maybe kind of given up on teaching or have a hard time teaching or don't want to teach for fear of appearing proselytizing like there's an appetite there that is new and fresh and I think it's because of everything going on especially in the United States and the United Kingdom you know politically and the, the 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 fierce divisions between people that have been created so it's a different um it's a different environment wouldn't you say
1: I agree with you. I mean, Julia, you you used to really enjoy those biographies of some of the Western Baha'is. Very inspiring. Which ones were they? Did they were... From cover to Gold. From cover to Gold, that's right. That was about the life of Julia Thompson. So, I mean, there is a way to write fantastic text that can be infused with, you know, someone's inspiring life. But,
2: my God, it's difficult. It is difficult. And I think from my from my own experience i think one of the things that that bahai's can offer the world as as can other others but is is to learn to love and respect everybody and i and i don't think that needs That's such so much at the heart of our faith and at the heart of spirituality that you need to respect yourself you need to respect the people around you you need to you know your life should be an act of service i think that that's something that we can if we can communicate it in, you know, person to person is often the easiest way, but in, in the way we live our lives, I'm, I, I'm trying to think how one can communicate that in a book itself, because to me, that is the thing that is almost the antibody to to what the world is going through right now. Mm. And, and I think mm. that if one can convey that somehow, we, we have in the past put together collections of quotations from different religions as a way to, create a sort of um those those values um that really are the core of a baha'i life that and Mm. or a spiritual life effectively and in a way that is not sort of specifically proselytizing but is 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 a way that people can can read it in not feel pressured and we produce quite a few on on prayer on death on on how to live a life and i and i think that was our attempt at the time to to try to get across those values and i'm i'm not sure how how one could do it today
1: it's difficult but i certainly agree with you that there is an appetite and i also think actually science and technology and as well as books as well as books have mm. made it mm. a lot easier for us to be able to imagine these things uh, i mean for me for example you know films like matrix uh, or, or, you know, the fact that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have absolutely no problem in thinking that I back up my phone on the cloud, you know, every second of the day. And, and to me, that is kind of a great metaphor for the way, you know, mm. hum, human soul is backed up in something like a cloud. You know, it's, uh, you know, to me, that makes it more imaginable, more, more possible that, you know, when we talk about immortality, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, well you know I'm you know my my mind and whatever is my personality is backed up somewhere in some form of a cloud after all my brain is full of electrical activities so why is it that I'm comfortable thinking that my phone in some mysterious way is backed up somewhere but I can't imagine that my personality or my soul is uh, has some immaterial presence somewhere you know so
0: mm. so, <laughs> so science fiction might be the path because <laughs> so, I, I love science fiction absolutely, in, in terms of absolutely. its Metaphorical power around spiritual ideas. Mm. This is some of what you're referencing right now.
1: Exactly, Matrix, amazing film. I mean, it's full mm-hmm. of spiritual analogies.
2: Mm. I mean, yeah. within publishing, you know, um, science fiction is considered a, a genre, and um, I think for people who are involved in in literary fiction, it tends to be regarded as a inferior genre, like romance uh, fiction or historical fiction. But in actual fact, science fiction often conveys. Ideas and possibilities and truths about our current life that can be transformative. So I, I think I've got a newfound respect for science fiction that perhaps I didn't have when I started my fiction list. Um, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And dystopian fiction as well, I think, can, can, carry, yeah. can carry a lot of ideas about who we are as human beings and our place in the universe. So I think maybe, maybe there's some way to do, to do that in fiction as well.
0: So do you hear that, listeners? We're looking for the next great Baha'i science fiction writer. <laughs> send your all send all your manuscripts to one world publications.
1: Care of R. Wilson. <laughs> <laughs>
0: 1313 Luck Street. Um, listen, uh, do you have a Baha'i quote or a prayer, or is there some something you've read recently in a Baha'i book or in the Baha'i writings that inspires you, motivates you, you find fascinating, that excites you? Um, I'd love to... Turn it a little bit more to the faith and um, see what, um, what is exciting you spiritually or what you've been pondering recently.
1: Um, I, I wouldn't say a specific quote as such, but you know I, I, we are working on a book on the Bob on the life of the Bob the behind you know, mm. the, 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 his teachings, his life, uh, his writings, And uh, it's, you know, the Bob is such an amazing, fascinating personality. You know, each time I read something about him or by him, you know, I realize how little uh, the Baha'i community uh, knows about, you know, about his life and, uh, well, his Mm. personality. Mm. You know, he seems Mm. to have been Mm -hmm. a much more approachable, kind of sweeter kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, personality than, for example, you know, when we read about the majesty of Baha'u'llah, as you know, the way you know, the you know, the, the early believers would approach him or talk to him or respond to him, the Bob seems to have been a much more kind of a normal person, you know. Uh, the people. Yeah, you know, people would mm. take their wife to to the prison and talk to him and. Uh, you know it's, it's it's a fascinating thing and you know his revolutionary mind and in fact mm, there there mm. is a greater I mean, even in in iran in the last few years there have been several books written about the impact of um, bobies uh, on in the iranian kind of uh, society in terms of uh, political movements etc etc mm, that mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. really released something and the early bobbies were kind of infused with some enthusiasm for changing this the social situation of, of the country which I think is also what attracted Edward Brown for example you know the the Cambridge guy um, you know he, he saw the Baha'is and thought gosh they're a little boring but the Bob and his uh, and his kind of revolutionary I- impact he thought was mm. wow that's mm. going to revolutionize Iranian society so the 200th anniversary uh, that we had recently uh, for the Bob is something which has rekindled, I think, interest in his life. And we are mm. publishing a book very short in the next couple of months, which wonderful. has con- contributions from many prominent uh, academics
0: in the field. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Juliet, what about you? Something you've been thinking about, reading about, praying about, meditating about from the Baha'i faith or writings that you want to share?
2: I think, um, you know, I'm getting old um, coming up to my 65th birthday. And I and think that's the thing-
0: nonsense. You are you a are <laughs> young, you young flower. You are a young British flower.
2: And I think age um, or maturity, um, I think brings to mind very much how we live our life and what we achieve in our life. And it's not about winning prizes or making money. I, I, I think very much about the principle of bringing yourself to account every day and applying that to your whole life because obviously at some point we're answerable for what we've done with the opportunities and advantages that we've had in life and to me I think is publishing enough are there other things that we could have done with our lives or should do with our lives and I think this is something we all need to think about that we need to think about how, how we lead a good life how we how, what we leave behind what how we help and I think I think we should think about that on a regular basis and think mm. what more can we do? Because to me, I think that's, you know, I'm getting near to the point where I'm going to have to answer for what I've done in my life and what I haven't done with my life. And I think uh, not in a negative sense, but I think it's important for us to bear that in mind, to, to bear in mind that we've been many of us have been given so many advantages, so many opportunities and Mm. We need to we we need to see how best we can use those to, for the benefit of other people. So for mm. me I think that's something I'm thinking about a lot.
0: Oh that's beautiful and you know Abdul Baha talks about that about you know meditating on the end of life as a motivation to inspire one's daily life and uh, certainly that you know native americans did that indigenous traditions many traditions throughout the world about you know the Stoics did it, you know, mm. meditating on, uh, meditating on, the, on the, the possible end of life. And each day is a precious gift. Well, this conversation has been uh, really stimulating. This is really exciting. Uh, so many people are going to be just thrilled to, to hear about your company and what you've done. And thank you for all of the amazing work that you've done, all the ideas that you've brought to the world, all the great stories that you've been a part of and helped tell so thank you so much, Noveen and Juliet, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank, thank you very, very much, much for inviting us. It's been yes. a real pleasure.
1: Very good to chat with you uh, after all these years hearing your name and watching you on TV. <laughs> thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.